This is Courtney Hammond-Wagner with the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Luis Alexis Rodriguez-Cruz, a PhD candidate in food systems at the University of Vermont. We discuss Luis's unexpected path to his research on Puerto Rican farmers' adaptation and food security following Hurricane Maria. We also talk about Luis's efforts in science communication, sharing his research in Puerto Rico and beyond. Finally, we talk about a blog post Luis recently published on how to not suffer much in graduate school and his takeaways for taking care of yourself in academia. I'd love for you to start by sharing a bit about what you're studying and what brought you to that. And and I know you did your master's in Puerto Rico before coming mm-hmm. to do your, your PhD at UVM. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, that, that transition too, of like, what, what'd you do in your master's and why did you want to get a PhD and, and what inspired you there? Yeah, sure. First, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, so yeah, so through my work, not only at UVM, but also in Puerto Rico, I think my research and the works that I have done and even the, the written piece that I, that I have done uh, intersect food systems, natural hazards, and, and governance. Uh, before coming to UVM, I did have the opportunity to work at the Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture in the University of Puerto Rico Extension Service and do my uh, master's there and where I work with fisher folks and understanding barriers for sustainable uh, seafood processing and, and production and, and those experiences, it made me aware of, of how many issues around food systems in Puerto Rico, not only climate change adaptation in general, but food access and, and other issues were, were very impacted by broader structures and external forces such as policies, things that individuals don't, don't have control of. And I wanted to get more involved and do it within extension in the other places that I was working. I didn't have like the agency to lead projects or or to have you know like the, the title to be <laughs> taken seriously and that led me to to apply to to UVM and where my where actually when I when I went there I really wanted to focus more on policy I wanted to understand like how federal policies affect uh, related to food security outcomes in the US territories but then Hurricane Maria happened and that definitely changed uh, what I'm studying in my dissertation is actually focusing on Puerto Ricans farmers' adaptation and food security outcomes in light of their recovery from Hurricane Maria to understand drivers and barriers for strengthening adaptive capacity, meaning those uh, sets of abilities and resources people have access to prepare for, withstand, cope with, and recover from the impacts of, of natural hazards. And I, and I think there's a trend in my work, so understanding, you know, within this in light of a changing climate and cumulative hazards, what are those sets of resources that people have access to, you know, to, to better adapt? Because we know that these uh, impacts and events are gonna keep coming, uh, especially in the tropics and in, a, in an island systems. And to understand that, but from, from more like a, a systems perspective, not focusing solely on the, the individual, but thinking about how cultural, political, and social factors intersect too. So I love the title of your dissertation because I looked it up when we started um, uh-huh. chatting at how you've got the sort of parentheses unnatural disasters. Um, yeah. And structural there are, vulnerability. There are no natural disasters. Disasters are not natural at all. So so I draw a lot about from, from disaster study that that understand that a disaster is when these natural hazards, you know have an impact on a vulnerable population. And, and what disasters do is just that they uncover and highlight all those dynamics and that, that perpetuate people's vulnerability to natural hazards. And it, within the, in the context of the, the pandemic, Antonio Guterres, uh, the, the UN uh, General Secretary, I think that's the title that the, the main UN person had, he was saying that the, this pandemic and like disaster is like, uh, an x-ray that that shows the different fractures within a system. So I think understanding adaptation in the context of recovery after such a disaster like Hurricane Maria, I think can give us a better understanding of what are those resources that people have access to to adapt. And and, am I right that for your dissertation, you're focusing mostly on agriculture? Or is it also fisher 
the sort of fishing community? No, no, it's, it's only farmers. And one thing that I regret is not have included uh, fisher people in, in the dissertation. And I really regret that. I remember that when the surveys was done. So after Hurricane Maria, well, I mean, it was, it was a terrible time. And I know that going back then, if I, if I had money, I think I would have to drop out of UVM my, my first year was, I think was very terrible, but anyway, that's another story. But one of the things that, that happened that I could help was me being a researcher. And I know that ex the extension service was doing a lot to help farmers after, after the, the hurricane. And through that collaboration between UVM and the extension service, we gave that support to the extension service and for farmers were surveyed across the islands of Puerto Rico to understand how Hurricane Maria in impacted them. And that information extension got all that information and stayed with them, definitely informed the different strategies that they were doing with the farmers they, they worked with. But when I got those surveys of 405 surveys, they were all paper, <laughs> 10, 10 pages each. So I was like doing that, that entry. And I remember when I got like one survey so in the first page, it was like uh, info about the farm, what they produce, et cetera, and that was all black. And I, when I kept uh, turning the pages, there was a part of uh, saying like, what were the major impacts? And, and it was saying like impacts to the reef, impacts to the ramps of the coast. And there were seven uh, surveys that were done to fishers. And I was like, yes, I work with Fisher Folk. One of my main criticisms is that in Puerto Rico, we don't talk about coastal food systems. And I deeply regret that, not including uh, Fisher people in the survey. So I, I want to hear more about, um, about that study and um, what you're finding and, and maybe more about the methods you use too. But I want to pause that for a sec because mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, when, when we talk about our PhDs, um, a lot of times what we don't talk about is like what we came into our PhD wanting to do and then what we actually uh -huh. did. Um, you know, and I think especially when researchers get further and further away from that. Um, but I think for students who are, you know, in the midst of that or thinking about a PhD, um, it's really interesting to hear that reflection. And what I'm hearing from you is that you had this sort of reflexive turn of like you came to work on, um, uh, you know, on a, on a related topic, but then this event happened, Hurricane Maria, which yeah. is really life-changing. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that shift and, and what happened mm -hmm. and how it happened? <sighs> yes. So, so yeah, one of my main uh, reasons to go to UVM in the, and start a PhD in food systems, is it, it was because I felt like I, have, I had a strong background, more like on biophysical, uh, in agricultural science. My, my bachelor is in biology with a sub-concentration in biotechnology and my master's is in food science and technology. And so I wanted to have more about social sciences and, and, and engage within anthropology, geography, because I wanted to understand how political structure in the context of Puerto Rico as a US territory, how that relationship related to food security outcomes in, in, in Puerto Rico and understand Puerto Rico's food systems within that context uh, as a US territory. And so I chose UVM because it was a, the program that had this balance between like the, the social, the natural, physical sciences, et cetera. And, and, and work with Meredith who has, as you know her, has a strong background on, on policy and, and food systems and also uh, farmer adaptation and behavior and, and, and a lot of great things. And she was my only, the only person that I, uh, that I wrote to, and that was the only program that I applied to. I was like, because I, I didn't want to leave Puerto Rico. If I wanted to do a PhD, I said to myself, it has to be like in the place that the intuitively that, that the curriculum and the person that I wanted to work with, you know, that the gut feeling. <laughs> and so, and so I, I talked to her about my ideas and anyways, I applied and in, after 20 days of me arriving to, to Vermont, uh, Hurricane Maria happened. And it was like, I didn't know about my family for three weeks. I was, there was a lot of guilt 
of feeling a lot of guilt, uh, me crying in a, in a nice house, in a bed, and not knowing about the people, and then like the images that I was getting, many people in, in the university didn't understand hurricanes or, or had not lived through. And so yeah, there were like many, many things that happened that definitely were making me feel like to away, but Meredith was a, a great support. And in my struggle of finding a way to help with other people at UVM, we definitely uh, send resources to organizations that I knew that they were doing great job, work, great work in Puerto Rico. And that's a thing when disasters happen, we should not send like things, uh, uh, you know, like cancel food or something. It's important to understand and to, and to do links with the people that are doing groundwork, the organizations that are doing work and ask them, what do you need? What can, can be done? And that's important in disaster recovery. And so, and, and yeah, and she said like, this is something that we can do. This is what we have in our control, the resources we have. And I, after weeks happened, we, I established with, I talked with the people that I worked with in extension. I was like, this is something I can do. Do you want to do it? And it was a, a, a back and forth. They, they told us like, this is the information that will be useful. It's, it was a very participatory process between us and the extension service and, and, and the colleagues there and the extension agents on what uh, on, on how to do that and so suddenly i had all my phd data which is <laughs> in the, amazing in the first semester of of of, of the phd and and so and yeah so we have a, that mix uh qualitative and quantitative data and i certainly wanted to do follow-up interviews and and it was hard like having that old that data because I didn't have my research question, my dissertation proposal. So building upon that, uh, and then like seeing what other people at UVM, you know, like the normal, what is normal, the normal process of doing things, and and suddenly because I have all of that, I feel like I was I was behind to some extent. Like mm. like I, I I feel like I was not doing enough. But then you know through through time that I started to learn more about it was my first semester like i i didn't have then the mind the the head that i have now and so after learning more like what people were doing disaster study natural hazards research i was saying i was like this is how i'm gonna frame and how i'm gonna engage with these data that i have and i think it's important applied information that can be used applied uh and also theoretically theoretically grounded and, and so, yeah, that, that how it <laughs> that's how it happened. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny hearing you reflect on that because I feel like, um, you know, you're reflecting on it in the context of what you, um, you know, what a PhD should look like. But mm -hmm. I almost feel like there's this broader um, context that that process could reflect on, which is research in general, right? And that what you're describing is this really community-based responsive approach where you, you, you didn't go into the, um, I mean, it, I know that you and, and, and Meredith, Meredith Niles at, at University of Vermont had um, conversations about what that approach could look like, but, you know, based on these relationships that you had already established in Puerto Rico, you were able to really have a sort of participatory approach, um, mm -hmm. which I think I remember you saying at one point resulted in some astounding um, response rate. Like, I can't remember what it was. 87%. 87%, which is like unheard of in survey research, um, social, you know, social science survey research. So um, I, so it's interesting that I feel like that struggle though of this broader, um, you know, what's the, like the sort of mainstream scientific approach sort of pushes us into like, you come to a research question with your theory and your literature and it's all set. And then, you know, we move forward with that. And yes, we want to include local communities and yes, we want to be, you know, responsive to community needs. But when you actually do that work in a way that centers the community and the community questions, it ends up looking a lot like what you just experienced, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's 
looking at now and now that I, after that I have engaged more in in, in participatory projects is it, we have to acknowledge that that accent of uncertainty and those cushion pools and, and going back and going forward and that's why it's important in, in, in participatory process to bring in reflection not reflection of ourselves you know reflecting alone but reflecting with others on why this this didn't work why what could work what can we do to improve the process what is useful what is not and also just guiding ourselves with those principles that if we're using these data from that that context of disaster and recovery that you you need to give it back and and i think that that had a toll on me that i that i was you know gaining something this this title that certainly has opened me doors and i know it will open me doors um that benefits me and like what how does this benefits others or or puerto rico in general like this information so i, I struggle a lot with that and that's why it's a, one of the things we did was when the the, the survey got, was done like do summary briefs research brief that were sent to extension they were done in spanish and english there was i sent them to all the farmers organizations that i know uh and the, the centers and researchers that were doing that work in puerto rico i, I wrote opus so just trying to make the that data available to others and because that's that was what a, what was in my control and i think often when we do this type of research we struggle on like oh this has to be used like policymakers have to use it like but actually that's not within our control to a great extent so i think as a researcher you know that what happened happened and i am doing my best to make that those findings that they are applied and just share them in, in different ways and make them accessible so are you um where are you going next with this work because i know you're you're at this point in you're wrapping up your PhD, I believe. Are you? Mm -hmm. um, and I believe you're in Puerto Rico now. Yes, I am in Puerto Rico. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Um, what's it? What's it like? Um, well, maybe this is sort of a sort of two questions. So starting with, you know, what what you're doing this work, and then I'm curious to hear any reflection on how that feels to be doing that in Puerto Rico as opposed to being in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm I'm so happy to to be here and yeah. So one of my I knew I knew that since when I started in uh, the PhD, I said that I want to have a year in, in Puerto Rico to do to do to do field work and and to be there because I I just like to be here. Period. And in this last year, I mean my fourth year, uh, I one of my main goals was to do field work and do more qualitative work to expand on the survey research. We know that, that survey data certainly is limited and there are things that quantitatively it's, it, they are hard to get, you know, understanding like vulnerability context and more around perceptions and, and culture and that kind of things. Uh, but then the, the pandemic happened and that certainly put a hold on, on everything. And, and I just had to accept that uh, one, we have to work with what we have, and I think one of this the struggle and that time that to one of the struggles within this PhD is that what is enough? When when we should stop? What is enough? And 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 I questioned myself, like if I had all that survey data that we have, we have like, I mean, when I did the <laughs> the Excel thing, it's like almost like eight hundred variables. It's like it's a lot of things. Uh, and we also have qualitative data like we got through the survey and I was like, I have not finished analyzing this or, you know, more deeply than just sharing the descriptives and, and which is important. But why, why I have to do this? Is it because, I mean, I know it's important expanding the work and bringing in more like a qualitative per perspective, but is it, is it okay to do it? You know, it's, it's, it's a pandemic people are struggling. So 
I don't want to be a burden to other people, even though that, you know, I already have the connection with the farmers and extension and other things that certainly we could have done that. But I said like, no, what I have is enough for this PhD. And I already have uh, the, the paper more focused on climate change perceptions. And I, Meredith uh, talked to you all in, 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 in her interview with you that we find that for climate change, awareness of impacts, risk and, and perceptions around one's capacity are not enough to drive action. We see that the farmers, even though they perceive themselves highly capable and motivated to add, we see that that does not, is not linked to their actual adoption of, of practices. And it's more thinking more that we need to focus more on the structural barriers and how everything intersects. So that's a review and I'm just focusing on, on on writing and on keep on analyzing the, the data that I have. And then in the future, certainly that what I couldn't do, maybe what I wanted to do for the PhD, it's something that I can do uh, afterwards. I think in the PhD, one of the main things that one learns is how to learn. And I think these years have shown me the ways that I learn, how I can be efficient in learning and learning like all these new things that, that I can do uh, when, I, when I finish. And, and like how I wrote in that, that post that a dissertation does not define you. I, I, think, I, think, I don't think that dissertation should be, I mean, it's important work certainly and definitely reflects your interest and what you wanna do in the future. But I don't think a dissertation is, you know, the, the only work that you're gonna do and, and the best work of your life. So, so yeah, I'm seeing this, my degree requirement, I'm writing these papers, submit, graduate, and finish that chapter. <laughs> well, that was a really great transition to, um, to some of your other writing. And uh -huh. um, I do really want to talk to you about your blog post um, on not suffering much in graduate school. Um, <laughs> but I also... Um, I also wanted to bring up the piece you did in working life in science. I think it was mm -hmm, last, mm -hmm. was it last year? Um, yeah, last year, July, I, I wrote that in, I wrote, I wrote that while I was writing my, my dissertation proposal. And that's what, when there was this big scandal of the, the Puerto Rican governor, you know, it came to light of many of the corrupt things that they were doing in this, uh, terrible chat that show like how the office uh, the office was too big for him and there was a lot of uh, people in the streets in Puerto Rico uh, asking well not asking demanding his resignation I remember just being in the office and have one tab with the Microsoft Word writing the proposal and then like other <laughs> tabs open with videos of the protest, with interviews and, and asking my friends that were there. And, and, I, and I was again in a moment that I was like, I have to be there and I'm here. Like happened with Maria. I have to be there and I'm here. But again, I think in drawing from my experience from Maria and how I, I handle it on, on focusing what is in my control, what I can do from where I am I, I wrote in that piece uh, that was published in, in, in Science Magazine on, on, on that process of understanding, even though I wanted to be there in Puerto Rico, the things that I did while being in Vermont, and I was just like, got other Puerto Ricans that were there. We like sent messages to news outlets in Vermont and, and other places with the Puerto Rico Science Policy Action Network. I worked with other people to but one of the things we did was to to gather uh, signatures of different many scientists in Puerto Rican scientists to demand uh, Ricardo Rosselló to to resign, and that was then published in, in, in Puerto Rico's largest newspaper. And so doing things with, that you can do from 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 where you are, and yeah, that was a, a great experience. And now I'm here, <laughs> and I miss Vermont for some reason. <laughs> oh, that's great. Sorry, like I wasn't sorry. here, there. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that question if you missed Vermont. So I'm glad you brought it up on your own. <laughs> um, but one thing that really stuck out to me in that piece that um, I think, you know, resonates 
can resonate really broadly is how, you know, in academia, when we go to get degrees, um, even, you know, even undergraduate, I think, um, but in particular with PhDs, where you kind of go on this um, journey of, you know, five, four, five, six years, um, it's often not within your home community or culture, you know, we're often going, you know, I think, I'm, I'm sure there are many examples of people doing a PhD close to home, but I don't think it's very common. Um, yeah. And that struggle that you're talking about of like staying connected to your community or culture while being really far from it in a lot of different ways, both um, physically and sort of intellectually what you're thinking about and doing. Mm -hmm. Although in your case, maybe it's a little bit, <laughs> you know, you were more connected in that sense. Um, but this, you know, this idea of like, how do you stay connected to that um, and be, you know, true to yourself and what you're trying to pursue, um, I think is a broader challenge that we don't talk about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I think especially among social science where, you know, the type of work we do where we're thinking about um, how important community is and how, um, you know, these social ties and norms and, you know, past experience, how all of this really um, makes us, you know, sort of who we are and our identity and what we choose to do, um, that there's this, mm -hmm. this disconnect, you know, that you feel then personally of like, oh, but I'm not there connecting with that, that I know to be important, yeah. you know. Um, and I really liked the, you mentioned some of them, like the takeaways that you had of like how you kind of overcame that, of like mm -hmm. engaging, can, what were some of those things again, it was like engaging with um, writing the op-ed or writing a letter, um, doing a protest in Vermont. Um, Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear you th reflect on that a little bit more. Yeah, and, and there was a, uh, there's another blog post, uh, like uh, the one that you mentioned, I'm not suffering much. The part one, I do, one of the key things that I say there, like the importance of building community where you are, and I, th that takes work, that takes energy. So I think one of the ways that I kept connected in, in Vermont was first through my work. I knew that what I wanted to do was related to to Puerto Rico and, and the broader Caribbean. When I had my first meeting with Meredith, I asked her about that and her thoughts of me like doing work from Puerto Rico and, and she was very open to it. Meeting other people that share your, your, your background, no, not specifically your geographical background, but other backgrounds and, and other identities and, and that you create that meaningful connection with others, that you relate uh, with others and that, that definitely it's work that you have to put in. But I think when we move, one way to keep connected is to, to the work that we do. Like th that privilege of being a, a PhD student that we have access to, you know, not everybody, but access to, to grants or to decide, to self-design your own project. If you can do that, design it in a way that connects with your, with your community, with, with, with the places that you feel that you feel loved to, you, you know? So sometimes I think we, we often think, and this my, my my perception is that we, like others or the, the system or academia expect you to do like these big projects with big data. And I, I, I like that what Teresa Mares from UVM anthropologist, Teresa Mares says that she does local anthropology, you know, in anthropology, you're expected to do the ethnography in faraway places, but what about doing local ethnography in where you are? So I think one way that I have stayed connected was was through my work. And even if Maria didn't happen, uh, the work that I was that, that I expected to do was related to to Puerto Rico. So I think that's one way to keep that connection and just be very aware of why do you want to do PhD. What what is the, the reason behind it, and if that reason is tied to your origin, to your community, to your love of place, I think I think you're gonna be connected. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful take home. Um, 
and it gets, so it does get into some of these topics that you talk about in this other blog post. Um, so I'd love to talk more about that. So I know this was the second one that you had written. You had written one mm -hmm. about your first yeah. year. Um, and I saw, I saw this on Twitter going around and had, um, you know, had some conversations about it and then had some others posted. And I think it really resonated, um, mm -hmm. you know, the way you describe your strategies for getting through your PhD. Um, and so we will post this on the In Common podcast blog so people can see it and link to your, um, to your website as well. But um, you have some, I mean, you have like this great little portfolio of strategies. Um, that I, that I love. Um, and, you know, one of them you've sort of already talked about, like the role of your dissertation, right? Your dissertation mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. it doesn't define you. Um, it's this thing that you sort of use to put into practice. Um, and yeah, I think I, that's a really yeah. great takeaway. And the side projects to not get bored from your dissertation, because even if you love the topic and it's, it's a struggle because it's the thing, you know, it's, it's, it's the research work, but it's also is the work that it's gonna get, people are gonna use to evaluate you for you to finish the degree till you graduate. And you get you get tired of it. <laughs> Even if you love the topic, it's like, oh my God, I have to write the paper. I have to do the statistical analysis. And it's just like, you know, so having those side projects, I think can keep the that positive emotions <laughs> towards yeah. your design research process and that that uh, totally resonated with me and also made me um feel a little bit better about my like perhaps too uh too much of an emphasis on the side projects <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> like, like i i also i mean i also um you know i'm i'm curious and i love to get involved in other projects and i feel like that's where i draw a lot of inspiration um, and so I loved seeing you talk about it that way because it gave me a, a framing for, you know, this is why it's important. Uh, but some of those yeah. some of those side projects that you've been on have really focused on science communication. Um, mm -hmm. And you, I mean, so you've you've been in a number of different fellowship positions um, with Switzer Fellowship, the Compass. What is it? Compass Scientist Centennials. Is that right? Yes. Uh, scientist Sentinels. Sentinels, Sentinels. Um, the Yale Ciencia Academy. Yeah, um, that was that was I think the one that opened me, uh, opened my eyes. I think in academia, especially when you go to PhD, still today there's this sense that a PhD is for for you to be a professor or you to like focus on research, and like often in my experience, I the the role models or the people that I saw that had PhD were in academic positions and being part of that uh, opportunity, that fellowship, that it's gonna, it, it's, it's gonna start setting applications for 2021. So PhD students that, that wanna like uh, engage in science communication and, and outreach can have that opportunity and apply, it's open to all. And, and in that opportunity, I saw that not necessarily in academia, you is the only place where you can do work that intersects research and outreach and communication that there are many other avenues that that you could take and within that that fellowship that definitely expanded uh the the options that were in my mind about what to do next um and so that was a very important opportunity and from with people other cohort members in there uh, we started the puerto rico science sorry, the Puerto Rico Science Policy Action Network that has served like a, a platform to bring Puerto Rican scientists and practitioners together to co-work and co-produce uh, knowledge and tools that allow them to impact policy making at, at, at different levels and bring their knowledge outside uh, the walls of academia because that one, that's another thing that we don't get teach uh, much about, you know, how to, to bring your work outside um so and i always i i always uh i have my mom and my grandma to help me on that because they're not going to read my paper but if i write an open and they understand it you know it's like okay this is this is working because not everybody 
have access to those type of work that we produce or have the interest to do so or have the literacy to understand it. So that's another thing that we have on, on, on our control is to get trained on how to do that. And, and you know, like we're all humans, we like to, to talk. So <laughs> not all of us are academics. So we have to like learn different languages and, and communicate with each other. And given my interest, Again, what I was saying in extension, the, the, the importance of doing a, applied work, work that is not necessarily uh, the, the main goal is to have a publication, but to produce information that is useful, that is applied. I think having those, those skills around communication and, and outreach and also the importance of following participatory principles definitely can allow us to do work was going to say meaningful work, but I think many work is meaningful, but work that is that is seen, that is more visible, that it's more um, easy to approach, we can say it uh, in one way. So another angle that you um, that you frame up as like a takeaway in your blog post from that um, is the internal, which I think is a really interesting like the, the, you know, being a part of these fellowships, like you just talked about, um, you know, gave you this skill set, but you reflect on it also helping to build self-confidence um, mm -hmm. and yeah. like raising your voice, um, which, you know, is, is also not something that um, we're necessarily taught how to do in our PhDs. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I, I remember in my, one of the things that I've, I remember in my first year, uh, the first class that I had was on a, it was on a Tuesday and I went to that class. And one thing that the professor asked was to say our names, what our research interest was, you know, like the, the, the normal like intro. And when it come to me, I, I got stuck on, on the language, I was like, I was very nervous and then I, I did not articulate well how, what I was gonna say. And I remember going outside and sitting on a bench and like, like my eyes got wet. I, 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 it, that definitely impacted me but, and reflected how hard I was being on myself. And like, you know, you're in a different place, different language, be compassionate uh, to yourself. And again, in other, in other aspects that were like, when you, when people ask, does anyone have a question and a comment? I did have one, but then I was, I was not there to say it. And I think having these uh, opportunities to go, that, that provide a space for you to be vulnerable, but also to give you a space for you to try things that puts you out of comfort and you have nice people that are there to, to guide you, that understand you, and that, that help you to like, uh, you know, like I remember that, you know, since we did theater, we did theater um, uh, activities, and throughout those experiences that I have sought, uh, have looked for, I have gotten the opportunity to, to build that, that self-confidence. And even I certainly get totally nervous I tell everybody, oh my God, another presentation. I just, even like being here with you, I'm like so self-aware of like, what if I'm saying have made sense and like how to say it correctly. But I think when I say self-confidence, I think I mean more being more self-compassionate, being mm. more understanding of where you are and that you are entitled to to fail, that to to make a mistake, to to get stuck, to not be articulate, to to feel embarrassed, you know, like, and and so that's that's something that throughout the PhD I have uh, I I have gotten to do is that to, to to build that that understanding, and I know that. Thinking of past experiences, if I had the head that I had now, I would not stay uh, with my mouth closed. So, <laughs> so I think now I'm a little more out outspoken and 
Because if you don't, if you don't advocate for yourself or defend yourself, you know, like who, who's going to? Um, and and definitely we need more people in the world that when they see something that is not okay, you know, like raise your voice and, and step in. Because again, not everybody has the ability or the resources to be outspoken or to step in. So I feel like there's so many directions that I want to go with that. Um, <laughs> I. It, well, one, I just um, sort of reflecting and I feel like it, what you're saying sort of connects back to almost this initial framing that we were talking about with your dissertation, um, which is a, a weird connection to make. But, um, <laughs> you know, the idea that the it's these structural, um, a, a lot of these, you know, norms and institutional structures that shape experiences um and not necessarily um you know your like it, it when you're talking about the um the self-confidence and the self-compassion it's like that's sort of this externally uh, imposed like this is how you're supposed to act in academia this is this culture mm -hmm. of um you know you've got to be ready on the spot um and you got to have the right response and you've got to speak with authority and sort of this argumentative nature of uh, interaction, right? That I know I had yeah. a really similar experience when I started my PhD, like feeling just silenced, feeling like I didn't have space to mm -hmm. speak or um, knew even where to speak from. And it took this sort of shift to then see that as not something that's at fault with me, you know, but something that's this broader culture of how yeah. we interact right um and i think that self-compassion piece of is part of that right realizing that shift um from oh wait you know maybe there's something wrong with how we do all of this together um mm -hmm. and i like the idea that these fellowships have given you a chance to see a different model you know of of interaction um and then it, it seems so sort of connecting that back to what you're what you do with that uh, it seems like maybe some of that has translated into um you know some of the work like i know you recently were involved with the um founding of the is it sacnas the yeah um, the, the the society for the advancement of chicanos hispanic native americans in stem the the chapter the sacna chapter at uvm that was led by phd student erica bueno and uh, some of us uh, from the university, uh, led by her, we founded this this new chapter. Again, making a, a platform for people to have spaces to discuss these different issues that you don't get. It, they are not part of your coursework or your curriculum, which I think they should. Um, and because we, I don't think we we don't talk about a lot, a lot about emotional hygiene. <laughs> you, you know? Oh, this is a set of tools and skills that we need to do to, to, to manage these emotions and, and responses that some of them come from, from within. Like, I'm my worst critic in terms of like how I talk to myself uh, often and just have the, the, the skills and the ability to, to respond to, to, those, to those thoughts. And within certainly those fellowships and, and opportunities have improved or expanded those that that skill set and one thing that i try to do through through blog posts or through panels or like the, with the segments uh, group for example in, in the puerto rico science policy action network and all the opportunities that i get to like be with others is to share all these skills that i have gotten because again those fellowships not everybody have access to them uh sometimes they just take like what 20 people or something and international students, uh, many of these, a lot of these fellowship, a lot of grants are not open to them because they are not citizens or, or permanent residents and they have a lot of like hurdles for people to, to access. So I think if we have the opportunity to get, to be in these places and get these, all of this knowledge just to pay it forward and, and share it in, in the best way uh, we can. How, how has, um starting that chapter at UVM, Ben, I've seen a lot of, um, I mean, I'm, I'm out of, you know, out of state, but I've seen a lot of really mm -hmm. great response to it. I'm wondering what, um, 
what that being a part of that community has been like. Yeah, so I it has been a great platform to keep uh, to solidify our community. Many of us within that group were already like friends and working on, on different things, such so having like a, a house to to be together and to bring others. And I don't have the number of the people of the members, but it have gotten up since it started. We did a panel uh, a few uh, weeks ago around demystifying grad school and just, you know, bringing people to share their stories. And I think that's something that we all can do as students or researchers is to share the, the, the story, you know, what goes behind the scenes. Uh, and because they're not, you know, like with that, you mentioned it with the blog post that it resonated with many people because they're, what has happened to me has have happened to to others as well. And when we share the, these stories and we, to the best of our extent, to the best extent that we can, we we open ourselves and share those stories with others. I think could repercute maybe on what you we were discussing, like what is normal within academia, and maybe expand the conversation and, and bring another perspective that you know that's that's not okay. Let's bring these other voices and and let's let's change the, the, the structure, you know. Yeah. So on that um, sort of another another angle of that that you get into with this blog post is um, is like time management and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which we've seen dozens of articles about, you know, mental health crises in graduate programs. Um, yeah. And I, I like how you are sort of openly speaking about how you take care of yourself, um, which, you know, we both would run into each other at the gym. And so I know uh -huh. <laughs> exercise being something that we both tried. Tried is the key operative for me uh, <laughs> to keep going. Um, yeah. But another one that um, I think this quote from your blog post is another crucial relationship in, in grad school is one I have with my psychologist. Um, and, yes. you know, I definitely took advantage of therapy in graduate school and still do. And um, and I, I just think it's really important to get that out there, you know, that like this is a tool we can use. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think having again it's about spaces and having a space where you can be vulnerable and, and talk about this this emotional cognitive things that might create hurdles for our for for our well-being i think we have we have to take advantage of it and and if we have the opportunity to access those resources use them and also be advocates for for these counseling surveys, uh, services around in, in universities, and and take out the stigma from 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 mental health, you know, that still today, even amongst people that have higher higher education degrees, there's like this kind of stigma. It's like often I feel like if you like are someone that focuses a lot of on, on emotional well-being and, and talk about it or seek help, it's it's like oh you're weak or or something like that. It, and I, it, I think it comes back when you were talking about like what is normal in academia and it's like, and, and you see like these cycles and for it, one, one example is that, that I saw that, especially from my friends that are like in labs that their work is more like bench, bench work. It's like these labs sometimes are like little factories and, and people have to stay a lot of hours there and, and then the advisor, it's like, I am the advisor. And when I was a student, I, you know, I went through all these struggles and it's normal. That's like, it's like the normal thing, these cycles of struggling and why that, why that, that has to be normal. And I think we need to change the conversation. And I think being open around the importance of emotional well-being and creating these spaces can, can shed like a new light on, on that. Yeah, I'm with you. So thanks for doing that work. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I feel like we've sort of run the gamut on your dissertation work, on this sort of work-life balance. Um, I wonder if there's anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to chat about. Mm, I don't know. 
I'm going with the flow here, Courtney. I know. Well, that's like, this is the end of every one of those qualitative interviews, right? You've got to ask that question. <laughs> what did yeah, I not true, ask true, you? Well, you did not ask. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we have touched upon like the most uh, important things. I think, I mean, for, for students that are listening, you know, I think the, the I want to like emphasize on like the work that we do, just try to get it out of the confines of, <laughs> of academia and just use that if we want to like do outreach or science communication, do other types of works, not only the, the scientific paper, but you know, op-eds or a Twitter thread or a YouTube video or, or share with, with do a brief and share with others. I think it's important that, that we share our work and also our stories. And I think through doing that, we can bring other perspectives to, to the conversation and maybe en encounter what we think is normal <laughs> that might not be working. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point to end on. Um, thank you, Luis. It has been really lovely to chat with you. Um, enjoyed having you on and hearing all about your stories of work and life and research. No, thank you. Thank you definitely for the opportunity and for this platform that you are, are part of. And, and again, I think it's very important what you're doing in, in bringing people where you're not only talk about their research, but about the humans behind uh, those research and, and the stories that I that are very important. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, we welcome you to check out other episodes of the podcast on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. Episodes can also be found on just about any other podcast app. On our website, you can find all of our audio content as well as our blog, which we use to post about content related to the show. You can also connect with us on Twitter, where we share links to new episodes, blog posts, and other tidbits relevant to the podcast and commons community. Feel free to reach out and get in touch with us with any feedback or ideas you have for the show. We'd love to hear what you think.